Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Lorraine Daston, professor at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin and author of the new book, Rivals, How Scientists Learn to Cooperate. Uh, Lorraine, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you. Very good to be with you. And congratulations uh, on the new book. So how did scientists learn to cooperate? The first question is, why should they cooperate? Most intellectual life throughout the centuries, and not only in European culture, but elsewhere, has been conducted more as rivalry and competition rather than cooperation. We have models, of course, of the scholar in the study in working in splendid solitude. And we also have models of the thrust and parry of the platonic dialogue or um, the medieval disputation. So it's really a novelty that they had to cooperate at all. And the real turning point comes in the 16th and 17th century, mostly in what we now call the natural sciences, but not only in them. It was also the case in the humanities that there was suddenly too much to know. And moreover, it was too much to know deductively, the last person probably to try to deduce all of science and philosophy from first principles was Descartes. And in the end, even he gave up and saw the need for experiments, lots of them. So it was clear that there had to be some kind of collective coordination. And the problem of the book is, how do you take the fractious, rivalrous, sharp-elbowed community of intellectuals and get them actually to cooperate. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the points that you make very early on uh, in the book, that this is a very uncommunal community, uh, this scientific community, because as, as you point out, they compete ferociously and interrogate each other relentlessly, ultimately in pursuit of excellence and discovery. And of course, of prizes and recognition, but from each other. And that is an important qualification um, the only people who are qualified, and this emerges very early in the various incarnations of the scientific community, the only people qualified to press laurels on your brow are your arch rivals, because only they are qualified to appreciate the magnitude of your contribution. Um, so that you have academies, you have international congresses, um, you have international collaborations even. Um, which are always conducted in a very fragile equilibrium between cooperation and competition in this very strange community, uncommunal community. Nobody knows who really belongs to the scientific community. It's geographically dispersed. Its members may never meet face-to-face. -face. Um, its institutions, journal editors, universities, research institutes, are famously uncoordinated. And as you said, the relationships amongst individuals are sharp-tongued and sharp-penned. Yeah, I was very struck actually reading the book, how individual progress really is judged by peer review. In fact, you know, I think ultimately, if there's one thing that comes out from the book that is at the center of the 350 odd years that you cover in the book, it's that that is at the very heart of what scientific activity actually means. Yes, although the meaning of who is your peer has changed significantly in the course of those 350 years. At the outset, it is the people at the very pinnacle 
of the hierarchy, and it's always a hierarchy, of European science, um, the academies, the academicians. By the end of the 20th century, it's almost anybody who has a doctorate in your field and has certain specialist credentials in your subfield who could act, for example, as a reviewer of your article submitted for a journal. But at the very pinnacle still, let us say, the selection of Nobel Prizes, although it is done in the final analysis by the members of the Royal Swedish Academy, a throwback to the 18th century, um, it is on the basis of nominations from the great and the good and only the great and the good. Yeah, it's it's interesting this this back and forth between individuals and the collective. And certainly if there was one thing that the pandemic, uh, I think, showed us, uh, it is that the scientific community is capable uh, of cooperation, the kind that international organizations like the United Nations would actually die for uh, in terms of cooperation. But it did also reveal rivalries as well between uh, different states, China and the United States, for example. So in, in, in many ways, we're living very much today with exactly the kind of paradox that you're talking about. That was actually the departure point for the book. I, I usually work on early modern science. That means the 16th, 17th and 18th century. And from the standpoint of someone who works in that period of the history of science, nothing, nothing seemed more improbable than a successful international scientific community. So the pandemic and also the global climate crisis really drove home to me that of all the international institutions that we have, the United Nations, the G8, the G20, this was really the only one that, however limpingly, actually worked to try and diagnose the problem and come up with some kind of solution. And, and where does public opinion and public pressure come into that? You mentioned uh, climate change science that you know, very much seems to be part of the political debate. And at different times, uh, there has been a sense of political and public pressure uh, being applied to scientists. That's especially the case, I think, now um, in democracies across the world and in some countries which are not democracies, a great deal, the lion's share of funding for science comes from the public purse. And in a democracy, that means that the expenditures for the public purse are quite rightly subjected to public scrutiny. And one reason why peer review in its modern sense was introduced across the board, for example, for National Science Foundation grants in the United States in the 1970s, was uneasiness on Congress's part that the money was being dispensed by scientists to scientists without any kind of public accountability. So that kind of public pressure, in a sense, is built in to the current funding system of science. But even before uh, we are talking about democracies funding science, um, even when autocracies, monarchies funded science, they too exerted a pressure of their own. I think there's never been a time that money came without strings. And, you know, we can, uh, we can point to examples where pressure from governments and, and public opinion, the pandemic and the, the creation of the vaccine being a, a very good example, have positive effects. But we can also think of examples from history. Eugenics uh, would be a, a good example of where 
uh, government policies have have led us down disastrous paths uh, in terms of science. Absolutely. And government policies informed by what was considered at the time to be the moving edge of scientific progress. Um, and when we talk about eugenics, perhaps we think most vividly and horribly about the excesses of eugenics to the right, Nazi Germany notoriously, but there was also eugenics to the left. Sweden also had its program of eugenics, nowhere near as murderous and harsh as that um, in Nazi Germany. But this was a worldwide movement and one that for some decades counted, as I said, as um, the moving edge of the most progressive science. So yes, there have indeed been cases in which governments have enacted policy not only with the imprimatur of science, but with credible scientific support. Do we balance that against uh, the tradition of the scientific method and empirical inquiry? I think it's important to realize that empirical inquiry comes after you have decided on what are your objects of inquiry. And if you decide a priority that your object of inquiry is going to be racial differences, um, then you have already taken a giant step in the direction of skewing your results. If you believe that racial differences are a matter of a normal distribution with a great deal of overlap, this is a topic you will never undertake to study because you think it's an illusory topic. So that's something important to keep in mind. And I think that it's been very important to have critical voices from both within and outside of science concerning um, just how topics of scientific inquiry are identified. Race is an egregious example, but one might think of the work that's been done by feminist historians of science who have discovered that still in the 1970s, even the beginning of the 1980s, more money was spent in the United States um, public money to investigate male pattern baldness than breast cancer. That's an example. This is the work of Londa Schiebinger. That's an example of how the choice of what direction you're going to channel scientific curiosity in bears the stamp of some unscientific political considerations. And to some degree, presumably, that is affected by the fact that until very recently, science was male-dominated. We can think of uh, examples, Rosalind Franklin. But do you feel that, that science is kind of becoming a more, more egalitarian in that sense, that women are playing more of a role in science? And, and how is that changing the nature of science itself? I, I do think that science is becoming more diverse, um, although it's quite uneven depending upon the field of science. I think, for example, in certain areas like developmental biology, um, almost become 50-50. In others, for example, theoretical physics, um, there's still a skewed gender ratio, um, although there's enormous improvement from what it was, let us say, 30 years ago. Um, so there has been real progress there. But I'm not trying to use the word egalitarian to describe these um, developments. Diversity, absolutely. The reason why I balk at the word egalitarian is because I think that science has always been about judging the fine differences between good, better, and best. And 
those hierarchies of judgment about whose work is good, better, best um, obtain whether or not the scientists are male or female. Whether it makes a difference in the kind of science done is a really interesting question. And I think there is some evidence, at least in certain fields, that that's the case. It's surely not an accident that some of the earliest and most trenchant critiques of science done on gender differences came from the first women to receive their PhDs in psychology. Um, they had a perspective that allowed them some critical distance on what were taken to be axiomatic truths on the part of their male colleagues. Um, there are other fields perhaps in which it doesn't make a great deal of difference, but there are very, very interesting patterns in the history of science. It's hard to say whether there's anything about the subject matter, but when one woman is prominent in the field, she attracts like a magnet a flock of talented young women to work with her. I think of Marie Curie and radioactivity. I think of um, Dorothy Hodgkins and X-ray crystallography, of whom Rosalind Franklin is also uh, another example. So there are these effects um, which lead to a kind of clumping of women in particular fields, even though um, the seed crystal around which the cluster builds may be accidental. Well, one of the things that I was very struck by uh, in the book uh, is how important tradition is in science. I mean, you you talk about scientists like Poloni uh, and Schills who are very deeply about uh, tradition, even though they represent in many ways its fault lines. You know, how how is that passed along generation to generation, uh, even at the same time while these characters are looking to overcome the the difficulties that their their predecessors had. This goes back to the uncommunal nature of the scientific community. So if one is sociologically inclined, one might ask, what is the glue that holds this community together? Um, they do not live in the same place. There are sometimes face-to-face -face contacts, but they're the exception rather than the rule, particularly today in which there has been an enormous increase in the number of researchers worldwide. They are in different disciplines. Um, there is no elected parliament of scientists. So the question is really a very pointed one, and it's one that the sociologist Edward Schill and the physical chemist and also sociologist of science Michael Polanyi addressed with two very different models, although ultimately I think they, they ended up converging by looked at their correspondence in the archives recently, and they indeed both agreed on the importance of traditions. And those traditions are both moral and epistemic. That is, they're both about um, character traits or values that we would immediately recognize as general values. For example, a commitment to honesty um, in especially the publication of results, but also conscientiousness um, and openness. But also they're epistemic, which is a commitment to accuracy or to objectivity. And these are themselves products of history. And they're products of a history that um, is very, very long in gestation. And sometimes, because each of these values has a different history, sometimes they tug in different directions. And this question of community, I wonder how you feel that uh, sometimes that's presented to um, a general audience that I'd, I recently saw the film Oppenheimer, uh, which in many ways was a, a, seemed to me to be a, a brilliant depiction 
of the scientific community at work with its rivalries, but also its corporations. Um, I wonder what you made of, uh, of that film and others like it. So the, the film Oppenheimer is interesting because, of course, the community at Los Alamos seems to be exhibit A for the scientific community, even though it's extremely anomalous. I mean, the idea that all of these people are together in one place um, in a kind of magical isolation from the rest of the world and working with enormous resources and, of course, with a sense of world-saving urgency, that, that is all completely anomalous. Although we, we do also see them in contact with scientists in Cambridge, in Berlin, where you are, in, in Princeton and other places. So you do actually get this amazing sense of these different scientists in these different countries working together and sometimes working against each other. Like the people in Berlin are definitely on a different team. And in the context of a, of a world war, playing for the highest stakes, the building of a nuclear bomb too. Yes. Now... The other thing which is not entirely anomalous about this situation is, of course, the veil of secrecy which surrounds it. Um, so that because there are those other teams, um, particularly in Berlin, Werner Heisenberg's um, working for a German atomic bomb, many of the norms of science which lead to cross-cutting connections in this community, like publication of results, have been entirely blocked. Um, there's a cone of silence which has descended. I, I think the film, however, captures something of the intensity of that experience, which everyone who participated in it records. Unfortunately, because it is about J. Robert Oppenheimer, he, he stands out um, as a kind of luminary in a way which I think belies the genuinely communal effort that this was. And let me just give you one example. Um, you mentioned that women are largely absent from the annals of past science. It's true when you think of the public-facing science, but, for example, at Los Alamos, what were the wives of these scientists doing? They were calculating. They were doing the massive calculations which were necessary to get this bomb off the ground. And the closer you look at the history of science, the more you find a hidden army of sisters, Caroline Herschel helping her astronomer brother, William Herschel, daughters, wives, um, who are part of this enterprise. So although women publishing under their own names is a relative novelty, although not entirely unprecedented even in the 16th century, they are there, and they were there at Los Alamos. And that's a kind of view of a community which takes not only the people at the very top, the most charismatic and famous ones, but all the way down the entire enterprise, which is necessary, which is, alas, is still obscured. You mentioned uh, the norms of science there. I was, I was struck very much at the end of the book uh, that you talk about the International Standards Organization uh, in Geneva, which, uh, as you point out, sounds like the, the most boring organization in the world, but actually one of the most central, you point out. It did occur to me, though, that you know, in it's so much about contemporary politics are these various rules-based international communities being eroded everywhere. You know, I wonder whether you think that an organization like that will be any different and what kind of impact that this is going to have on science more generally. Good question. And I don't pretend to have a crystal ball, but I'd only note that the ISO, the International Standards Organization, to which you are right, it is the apotheosis of blandness. Um, you know, it's one of these 
anonymous glass buildings near an airport. You know the type. But as you point out, it, it sets the rules for almost everything. It sets the rules for everything. Exactly. Everything from baby food to um, microchips, you know. And what's really interesting about it is, unlike, say, the World Trade Organization or the World Health Organization, which indeed you're right to say that these are rules-based international organizations whose authority is being eroded, um, there's no treaty here. Participation is entirely voluntary. It's not even an intergovernmental organization in that territories, for example, which have no statehood, can send emissaries, as do um, industries, private industries that happen to be involved in this. If, for example, you're setting the standards for dog food internationally, you can imagine who is going to show up. And it has no enforcement. There, there are no sanctions for violating its standards, except one important one, which is you're basically excluded from world markets. And so it's a very clever kind of power, which is neither the hard power of armies nor the soft power of diplomacy. They don't have diplomats or treaties. It's some kind of squishy power in between, but so far enormously effective. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, as you make clear, standards are the way in which we manage to get around international rivalries and, and markets are an essential part of that. Uh, but, you know, I, again, my mind came back to thinking about the, the pandemic and particularly thinking about the Wuhan lab and the rivalry and uh, between the United States and China over what happened there. Uh, we still don't know the truth of what happened there. I mean, is that an example of where international rivalries get in the way of science uh, with, of course, disastrous uh, effects for all of us? Yes. I mean, I think it should be said in defense of the Chinese scientists that they very quickly published the genetic code of SARS-CoV-2, which permitted labs all over the world to start working on some kind of vaccination. Um, and the trouble seemed to have begun when then American president Donald Trump began to um, call this the China virus and to accuse um, the Chinese of either fabricating their data or, or covering up. I certainly do not pretend to know the truth of the matter, whether or not this virus, it was a zoonotic um, transmitted by animals at the Wuhan animal market or a lab failure. But the fact that it became a matter of international smear politics on both sides very much muddied the waters in terms of an inquiry. It would have been hard enough as it was after the fact to have conducted such an inquiry, but those kinds of intergovernmental hostilities made it all but impossible. The scientific community has um, a very ambivalent relationship toward government. On the one hand, Government has been historically the most generous and dependable funder of science. On the other hand, intergovernmental hostilities have been in many ways the greatest obstacle to international science. Yeah, and it's it's always struck me that that seems to be one of the most important elements of the relationship between science and government, certainly in the West anyway, that scientists do what they do and and they go there without thinking necessarily about the social implications that it's the job of governments to work out what the ethical bound and boundaries might be semstel research would be a perfect example of that that the scientists do the science that they're allowed to do but it's the job of governments to actually set the parameters 
yes, you will always hear some voices within the scientific community arguing for the absolute autonomy and freedom of research of science. But in fact, historically, there has never been a society which has not placed certain bars on the exploration of certain avenues of curiosity. For example, human experimentation would be an example. We do not think um, the values of pure research and curiosity surpass the value of human life. So yes, um, however much scientists may chafe under that kind of regulation, it has always been a factor. And again, when we think back to the pandemic, I mean, it was an incredible moment uh, in many ways, as well as being a, a tragedy, of course. But, you know, Operation Warp Speed in the United States, cutting through the red tape, creating uh, that vaccine, which um, uh, saved so many lives. I mean, it, it, it does raise a question. Why isn't it always like that? And um, why aren't we able to cut through red tape? Uh, have we learned lessons from that? Is that, for example, uh, how we move towards curing cancer, for example. Let's speak to the specifics of curing cancer. There was the Richard Nixon's war on cancer, um, and that perhaps in the long term did lead to a bit of progress, advances, but so far, as we all, alas, know, there's no cure for cancer, in part because probably cancer is no one thing. But um, it's important to realize that, yes, it's quite possible if the political will and the matching funds can be mobilized quickly, astonishing things can be done. Um, the process is usually quite wasteful, it must be said, um, but it gets the job done in an emergency. And both the Los Alamos Manhattan Project and uh, the vaccine are great examples of this. Throw huge amounts of money and talent and also introduce a bit of um, competition amongst the various factions which are competing for the prize. Um, and you get astonishing results rather quickly. But um, there are always going to be a clamoring crowd of initiatives wanting that kind of support. And finally, uh, you say right towards the end of the book that you break out in hives when you're asked to draw lessons uh, from uh, history. But at the risk of that, what is the one lesson uh, that you would take away from this historical understanding of science that we should be applying today? If I made two lessons, and I, I, I do say this um, in fear that my license as a historian is about to be revoked. <laughs> I'm going the business of um, explaining, not predicting, but here goes. Um, lesson one, um, however meddlesome and sometimes destructive governments have been towards science, they are still the most dependable source of the kind of long-term funding that science needs to flourish. Um, and secondly, that what holds the scientific community together is in fact disciplinary advanced training. Next to the army and perhaps medical school, there has been invented no more effective engine of socialization than graduate school. And that indoctrination um, in the methods, the substance, but also the values of science um, is what creates the tenuous filaments that connect this dispersed community together. So one ought to be wary of tampering with that model. 
So the book is Rivals, How Scientists Learn to Cooperate. Uh, it's written by my guest, Lorraine Daston, and published by Columbia Global Reports. Uh, but for now, Lorraine, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman, and this is me, Richard Aldous, saying thanks for listening. 